right, let's get our Bibles out and let's just try to learn a few things about what the Bible says about this. Earlier this year, I uh, started doing a lot of studying along this line and developed this lesson, and uh, I think you'll find it interesting. I hope we don't want to add to the Bible or take away from it. If I ask you what you know about angels, you'd probably say, well, I don't know all that much about it. You're going to be amazed how much you know and yet how much you may have overlooked as you, as you, as you think about the, the, the topic. Where do angels come from? Ever think about that? Are they eternal like God is? Or have they always been here? Or, or uh, you know, are they like man? What are they? Well, Psalms 148 is a pretty good beginning place. And you look at that psalm, and there the, the, the psalm is right. And in the midst of a, of a listing of several things, you find the word angels. Look at that. Psalms 148, praise ye him, all his angels, praise him, all his hosts. And there it is. That's 148, uh, verse 2. And you look a little bit later, verse 5 said, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. What do you know about them? Well, they're not eternal. They're created beings. Now, when did God create them? I'm not sure. Uh, there's an indication of the fact that they, uh, uh, you know, uh, were created far or were created before the time Adam and Eve were created. How much, long, how much before that? I don't, I don't have a clue. I just know that the Bible says angels are created beings. Now, now, that much we know. Somebody says, well, I know something about angels, and that is, you remember before God made Adam and Eve, you remember that war they had up in heaven, and Lucifer led the angels in rebellion against God, and Lucifer was cast out, and, and you know the Bible talks about a lot of that. Well, the Bible does talk, but sometimes a lot of, a lot of things people talk about is not what the Bible's talking about. Now, we do know angels sin, do we not? Two places in the Bible we find the fact that angels are capable of sinning. And both of the verses are, are very similar. Look, for example, in the book of Jude. Uh, in, in the book of Jude, you read about these angels there. And, and it's in verse 6 that Jude describes some angels that sin. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness and through the judgment of that great day. And there is that verse. Now just turn back two or three pages to Second Peter chapter 2. And Peter says about the same thing, a little bit different choice of words, when again he's doing like Jude is, and that is discussing false teachers and the fact that God is going to bring judgment against false teachers. And he says, verse 4, if Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, if God spared not the angels that sinned, cast them down to, to hell, and that's not the ordinary word for hell that, you, that we usually think about. The Greek word here is not Gehenna, and it's not, not even Hades. It's a third word, third Greek word that translated hell. It's Tartarus, and says he cast them down to that place, and then it says, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. What do we know about angels? Well, I know this, and you do too, because we just read it. We don't want to add to this, don't want to take away from it, don't want to speculate in it at all. But the verse does say that angels at some time did sin. Now, how did they sin? Well, the Jude says they left their first habitation or they did not keep their first estate. And you look at that and you think about that and, and what you come to a realization is that, yes, there were some angels who did not abide in the place that God gave them. And that's, that's important because of something we'll say for a little bit later in, uh, uh, in this discussion. But these angels at some time, at some place, left their first estate. They left their habitation 
And as a result of that, God casts them down, and they are now at this time in chains of darkness awaiting the, great ju the judgment of the great day. That much we know. What about this matter of Lucifer? How many times do you reckon Lucifer is mentioned in the Bible? You, as the way folks talk about it, I don't know if you're watching the television program this morning, but I saw a fellow, uh, I, I guess he was out of Columbus on the, uh, one of the preachers there, and he talked about, the, about Lucifer being over there in Revelation. Well, you're going to have to look hard to find Lucifer in Revelation. Uh, where, where do you read about Lucifer? Well, the way a lot of folks talk, you, you think he's just on about every page found in the Bible. You know the word Lucifer is only found one time in all of the Bible? Only one time. Look in the book of Isaiah. And to understand a little bit about this, you've got to uh, uh, keep it in the context in which it's found. You begin in Isaiah chapter 13, and in Isaiah chapter 13, the Bible says the burden of, uh, of Babylon, which uh, Amos, the son of Amos, did see. Now here's God's oracle against Babylon. And, and it is a judgment, a pronouncement of a judgment that God has in store for great, great Babylon. Now Babylon is that nation that about 150 years after Isaiah writes this book, it's that great nation that's going to be taken into captivity, or that's going to take the Jews into Babylonian captivity. So before it ever happens, God says, let me tell you something, true enough, the Jews are going to Babylonian captivity, but I want you to know that that doesn't mean they're greater than God and their gods are greater than the gods of heaven because the God of heaven has something in store for Babylon. That is the, the, the burden of Babylon, the oracle of God against, against Babylon. And he says in reference to Babylon, I will stir up, look at verse 17, I will stir up the Medes against them, uh, which will not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Uh, their, bowels, or, or their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces, and uh, they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children. In Babylon, the glory of the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. What we're talking about, judgment of God against Babylon. Pretty obvious what, that's, what, is, what is involved in that discussion. Judgment day is coming. And that judgment day that is coming against Babylon is going to be against the Medes and the first. You know this story. You know the fulfillment of it. You remember Daniel and the handwriting on the wall when he said, Mini, mini, tikel, you farson. And that very night, the kingdom fell. Now, that's, that's way on down the road, 150 years or more after, after this, after 250 years, pardon me. To, uh, 250 years uh, after this, that all of this transpires, and all of this happens uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in the period after this. Uh, but he says, now that's what we're talking about. Now keep reading and just ignore sort of chapter divisions as, uh, because chapter divisions are things that are put in there by men, and as you continue to read about this judgment, you, you don't change topics when you get to chapter 14. Chapter 14 says, now God's bringing judgment against Babylon, but he's going to have mercy on the Jews. I will have mercy on Jacob and yet choose Israel. Though they're going into captivity and though the Babylonians are going into captivity, God hasn't forgotten about them. The Lord said, I will yet have mercy on them. I think it's an indication that perhaps even the captivity itself was a part of the mercy of God. You know how you remember your dad when he used to say it's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you? I'm glad my, my daddy was merciful to me at a time whenever he said it's going to hurt me more than, than it is you. I will yet have mercy on them. I will continue to have mercy on, on them. And then he says, verse 4, that thou take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. 
Now, how do we know what chapter 13 was talking about? Chapter 13, verse 1 says this is the burden of Babylon. Chapter 14 says, now here is a proverb. Here is a statement that you take up against the king of Babylon. Now, we know uh, the name of one of those kings of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. You remember the story about Nebuchadnezzar and how, how, how great Nebuchadnezzar thought he was? You, you, you remember he was the first one to sing uh, uh, that song that Muhammad Ali thought he wrote. And that is, I am the greatest. You, you, you recall that time, Daniel chapter 4, that Nebuchadnezzar was out looking at the beauties of his kingdom and he says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by the power of my own hand? And about that time, a voice came out of heaven and said, Nebuchadnezzar, they're going to drive you out from among men and you'll go out and eat grass. You know the story. It's been a while since you looked at it and, and, and a long time maybe since you taught it in a, in a Bible class, but drive you out and you'll eat grass like the oxen your hair will grow long and, and the fingernails will grow long and, and you'll be out there until you learn the most high rules in the affairs of men. That's kind of the attitude the king of Babylon had. You remember Bel, Bel, uh, Belshazzar? The, evidently the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar and he's the one, he's the king, he's the king whenever the handwriting is on the wall. You remember what they're doing when the, when the handwriting appears on the wall? Having a drunken feast. And they command that the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem be brought out and they have these gold and silver and silver vessels from Jerusalem and they're toasting their gods. When at that time uh, a hand writes on the wall kingdoms required of you. Weighing the balance is found wanting. And you'll be delivered into the hands of the Medes and the, and the Persians. That's the attitude of the kings of Babylon. Now you look at it. Take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. And here's what you say, and it, it prophetically here's what you say to, to, to the king of Babylon. The Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hinders. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth in singing. Yea, the, the tree, the, uh, the fir trees rejoice at thee in the cedars of Babylon, saying, Since thou art laid, or kings of cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since thou art laid down, no fellows come up against us. Sheol, or hell, from beneath is moved to meet thee at thy coming. It is stirred up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It's raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nation, and all that all uh, all they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou become as weak as us? Understand that? Talk about this king of Babylon, and in reference to this king of Babylon, he says, Look, God has broken your staff and broken your rule. And, and these who are in Sheol, these individuals who are there, the kings that are there, they're looking at you and they said, you're just like we are. You're not any better than we are. Now in reference to that, he says, thy pomp is brought down to the grave, the noise of thy vows, the worm is spread under thee and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? You tell me who's that talking about? <laughs> That's not all that hard to figure out who that's talking about. You put it in its context and you begin reading it and all of a sudden here is this great, great discussion of this man who thought he was, he was the brightest star in the heaven. He thought he, he thought he was God's gift to mankind. And the Bible said, you have, your staff has been broken and you have been brought down for thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into the heavens, I will exalt my throne 
above the stars. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation of the sides of the Lord. I will ascend up to the heights of the clouds. I'll be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to Sheol to the sides of the pit. Uh, they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and considering thee saying, Is this the man? that made the earth to tremble and did shake the kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened the house of the prisoners, all the kings of the nation, even all of them, lie in glory, every one of them in his own house, but thou art cast out of the grave like an abominable branch, and, uh, and as the raiment of those that are slain, thrust through with the sword that go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden underfoot. Thou shalt not be joined with them in burial, because thou hast destroyed thy land and slain thy people, the seed of the evildoers shall never be renowned. And all, the, all Isaiah is saying, look, all the other kings, they've got burial places. But what about you, king of Babylon? You won't even have a burial place. Why? God's judgment's come against you. And then he says, prepare slaughter for his children for the, because of the iniquity of their father. But they did not... They do not rise to possess the land or fill the face of the world with cities. For I will raise up against them, saith the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and the remnant and the son and the nephew, says the Lord. I suppose you'd never heard that Lucifer was the devil. suppose you'd never heard that. And all you had is just the Bible. One of the things that this congregation has been noted for over all of these years preachers who just love the book. You don't know this, but I visited this congregation. I was trying to think this morning, driving to the building, 1952-53. Was that in this building? that building been here this long? Winfrey Clark was preaching here. That goes way, way back. I was two years. No, I wasn't two, but I, uh, I was down here in either LaGrange or Lynette. Oh, pardon me, not uh, in Hogansville or Lynette. Eighth grade. Came up and met Winfrey Clark. My, oh my. What a Bible student he was. Sitting in that office, hearing that man. You people know what, you know what it's like to go to the book, study the book. It's the kind of preaching you've had over all the years. Brother B.C. Carr, my favorite preacher of all, Brother Franklin Camp. They just, uh, you know how jealous I am. This fellow beating kin folks to Franklin Camp. That just, just, uh, you know, teach you how to sit down and study the book. And that's what this book says, isn't it? And if you'd never heard that Lucifer was the devil, and all you had was this passage right here, you'd read about the king of Babylon that fell out of heaven. What does that mean? Well, he just thought he was the greatest. He lifted himself up, and the Lord said, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? you got a marginal reading? you got a center column reference on the word Lucifer? You've got anything other than the, than the King James translation. If you've got the New King James or any other translation, you don't even have the word Lucifer in your Bible at all. It's the only time it's found in all of the Bible. And that is, it's used in reference to the king of Babylon. Not in reference to the devil, but in reference to the king of Babylon. Somebody said, Dan, you know, you know where, the, you know where uh, angels came from? You know that story about Lucifer leading rebellion against God in heaven? Yeah, I know people say that. But I don't know that Lucifer led it. And I don't know that there was rebellion in heaven. I know that Jude and, and, and Peter both said they kept not their first estate and they're in chains of darkness away to the judgment. What about angels, though? Let's get back on topic and get on track. What do we know about angels? Let's think about it. We know so many times that the angels are involved in the miraculous. 
you ever thought about how many angels there are involved in the resurrection of Jesus and how many times the angels were mentioned there that, that said he's not here, he's risen? Ever, ever, ever read through the Bible and see how many times there are angels of God that are involved directly with the, with the miraculous found throughout the performing of miracles. And we know that, that they were the, the, the hand of God or the instrument in the hand of God that brought all these things about. God caused that to happen. You'll read about the Lord doing this and a couple of verses later he'll say, and the angel of the Lord did this. You begin looking at all of that and you'll see, yeah, angels were involved in that which was miraculous. That's not our purpose today to talk, about, to, uh, to talk about the cessation of the miraculous, but isn't it abundantly obvious that people today who are claiming to perform miracles aren't doing it like they did in Bible times? A lot of times people will say, man, I, I went down to my church and I'll tell you what my pastor did, I saw a miracle down there. Well, what happened? Well, this lady came forward and had cavities in her teeth, and the, and, and the Lord prayed, or he pray, the pastor prayed for her, and the Lord put fillings in every one of those teeth. Well, I just don't think that's the way the Lord did it in Bible times. And, and, and when I talk to my, my religious friends, and they're sincere, and I'm not trying to mock their sincerity, but the great question needs to be asked is not, have you seen a miracle? Have you seen a Bible miracle? They've taken the word miracle and redefined it. They think, they think it's a miracle that somebody, somebody's in the hospital and, and two weeks later comes out of the hospital. Well, I'm not going to deny that God works, but miracles are those things that happen just like that. It's not three, 72 days later, or 72 hours later, he, got, he started getting a lot better. The very hour, John chapter 2, or John, whatever chapter that is in John, John, not 2, it's over on the bottom page, left-hand side. John chapter 4, I guess it is. Uh, no, it can't be 4, it's got to be 3. The nobleman's son, anyway. Just read the whole book, Brother Keeble used to say. It's in there somewhere. And, and uh, uh, the very hour that Jesus says, you go back, your son is made whole. That very hour, right then, he's made whole. Now this, now this 72 hours later or something, he started getting a lot better and just amazed everybody. And, uh, you know, if the Lord... Uh, uh, if, if the Lord's going to fix somebody's teeth, he, wouldn't, he just wouldn't do a halfway job. He wouldn't just put in a new set of fillings. And, and so we ought to recognize dead are not being raised. When, dead, when the dead were raised in Bible times, couldn't keep it quiet. It happened all over the place. I remember being in uh, Hamilton, New Zealand. Ask, a, ask a, uh, a fellow I was studying with. He was a, he was a pastor in, in, in one of these churches. And I said, tell me, uh, have you raised the dead? I said, you know that... He said, no, I've never done it, but David Sugar's doing it up in Pablo, Fiji. Well, I was 12, 1,400 miles away, but would you believe within one year's time, I was sitting in David Sugar's house in Pablo, Fiji. He was upset at, at, at us because we were up there trying to do some of the teachings of people, and we talked about the fact that Mark 16 says that if they drink any deadly thing, it'll not, it'll not, it'll, they'll not be hurt at all. And went to see him to really ask him about this question because Ronald Ball had said that fellow had raised the dead, went to his house to check it out. We walked up to his house and he said, I know who you are. Talking to me and Ron Coleman, Don, I guess, I don't know if you remember Ron preached up in Arab and we did mission work together, but, uh, and uh, he was really upset. He said, you fellas trying to get me poisoned last night out in the village. And we said, well, you ought not to be upset at all. You know, that we, we weren't trying to get you poisoned. We were just using an illustration about the fact that that if a fellow has power like that, they just pick and choose which miracles they want to do. And he was rather upset, and we told him he ought not to be upset. And we said, by the way, Mr. Sugar, said, we've, Ronald Ball said you'd raise the dead. If he said, no, I haven't done it, but they've done it over in Finland. 
Well, I've not been in Finland. I don't know where I'd start looking if I got there. I, I don't even know if I could speak the language. I know I couldn't speak the language to find, to find it out. But you see, people aren't performing Bible kinds of miracles. You look at the kinds of miracles that were in Bible times. Look at what men are claiming to do today. It's much different than daylight and dark. And we ought to understand that. But you see, that still, to discuss that, doesn't say what about us and what about angels in relationship to us. Angels doing anything for us? Here we are. We're trying to serve the Lord, be His people, and do everything we can to, to be pleasing to Him. What about us and angels? We know some things about angels. We know about those angels that sin, and we know where they are. They're in chains of darkness awaiting the judgment of the final day. Understand that. And we know that there were times throughout, uh, 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 as we read the Bible, we know there were times when God's ready to do the miraculous. He used angels. To, but what about us? What about us? Well, are you aware of the fact that there's a strong indication in the Bible that angels are present every time we worship? There, there are two places where that is. One is in Luke 15. In Luke chapter 15, there, there's the story of, of the parables of Jesus about lost things. There's the lost coin, and there, there's the lost sheep, and there's the lost boy that went away from home, and the lost boy who stayed at home. And in Luke chapter 15, he says in verse 7, uh, after he talks about the, the sheep that had been found, I say to you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. That's interesting. Joy in heaven when a sinner repents. Now look at verse 10 and, and sort of underline that in your mind. Likewise I say unto you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. You know what that says? What that says is that when you elders go out and, and and do everything you can to bring back somebody that's fallen away. And when that individual comes back to the Lord, angels are happy about it. Now, doesn't that say angels? Doesn't that say angels are aware of what's happening on this earth? I know they, that uh, 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 that they're they're aware. They long to know what's happening on this earth. First Peter chapter one, verse uh, starting in verse ten, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. Searching water, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it spake beforehand of the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. And then the latter part of verse 11 says, which things the angels desire to look into. And that pictures angels throughout all of God's dealings on this earth, trying to figure out what God's going to make happen on this earth. Couldn't figure it out. Not entered into the heart of man the things God had prepared for those that love him, but even the angels themselves couldn't figure out what was going on. That means they knew what was happening on this earth, but hear this verse in Luke 15. Luke 15 says that when some brother or sister walks down this aisle, when that lost sheep comes home, the angels of God rejoice. That's thrilling to me. What do angels do? I, there are so many questions I have about them. I, I just don't understand, but I do know this. They're aware of what's happening in our worship. You know, in First Corinthians chapter 11 about the covering that's over there, and, and we're not, it's, it's not our purpose to get up with and talk about the covering. That, talk, you used to talk about that 35 years ago. It was really, it really, we did a lot of talking about that, but the covering over there. And, and he says, for this, First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, for this cause ought a woman to have 
a, have a have a uh, power on her head, a sign of authority, because of the angel. I don't know everything that means, but I do know this. First of all, I know that First Corinthians eleven is not discussing specifically the the, the the assembly of the church because this is an assembly. Or First Corinthians chapter eleven is talking about a time when a woman could pray or prophesy. And chapter fourteen says she can't pray or prophesy. The whole church has come together. She's not allowed to speak. She's commanded to be under obedience. It's a shame for women to speak in the church. And so First Corinthians chapter eleven is not talking about. Specifically and directly about, about our Sunday morning assemblies. Talking about a time when a woman could prophesy. Couldn't prophesy in that assembly. Forbidden to do that. But at some time, at some place, in some Bible class situation, God used that woman to prophesy. And the Bible says, now when you're prophesying, don't you do like these pagan prophetesses who whenever they're claiming to speak for their gods, reach up and pull that veil off, the, pull that veil off so everybody know they're prophesying. He says, first Corinthians chapter 11, he said, look, don't you understand that, that that removal of that veil makes you look like one of these prostitutes that's out here in the streets It symbolizes a whole lot more than you think you're symbolizing. You're saying more about yourself than you recognize what you're saying. And then, so he says, now when you pray or prophesy, you keep that veil on. But he says you ought to do it because of the angel. What does that say? It says the angels knew what was going on. And I don't know if you have a ladies Bible class here, and I don't know if, uh, if you have a lady who teaches a ladies Bible class here, but couldn't they have had something equivalent to that in the first century? If the older women are to teach the younger women, aged women, oh, don't you wish we had some aged women in the church? I never met a woman in the church yet who said, I'm one of the aged women in the church. I, you know, you know, some of these days we're all going to get old. We haven't got any aged women in the church. That's one of the problems we've got. But you see, there's a, there's a place and a time for aged women to teach younger women. And that may have been when this woman was praying or prophesying. It might have been at a time when they were just sitting around somebody's home and somebody said, you know, some young lady said to an older lady, what should I do about this? And the, the God used her as a prophetess to reveal his will, just like he uses this book to tell, that, tell aged women today, if we could ever find any, what, what they ought to teach, what they ought to teach the, the, the younger women. And then would, don't, wouldn't it be great just younger women would listen? I've heard a lot of older women in the church. We've got older women. We don't have any aging women. Older women in the church say, if they, just, if they just listen to me, I can tell them how to raise those kids. Ever hear that? Ever run across that attitude? Maybe it's your mother-in-law. I don't know who it is, but, but you know what I'm talking about. But you see, whenever they were doing it, whenever they were doing it, angels were aware of it. If, anything, if, 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 if there's any conclusion we can reach, it means angels are aware of what's happening right now. Angels are aware when sinners repent, and angels are aware, angels are aware of what's happening in a Bible class, in a, in a, in a situation. Now, it may be, and just to chase a rabbit for just two, two seconds, the reason she ought to have her, the sign of authority on her head because of the angels it may be because the removal of that sign of authority was leaving her first estate, leaving her habitation, the place where God put her. And he said, now that's what angels did. You ought to recognize that God's greater creation in, in one sense, the one for whom he sent his son to die, they ought, they ought to, they ought to uh, not do as the angels have done. What else do you know about angels? I'll tell you one of the most fascinating things in all the Bible. 
So look, look in Matthew 18. In Matthew chapter 18, I marvel at how I can read the Bible and see things and not see things. But, it, but in Matthew chapter 18, there's that great discussion about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus said, uh, takes a, calls a little child and sets him over in the middle of in the midst of him, and he says, "Except you become a little child, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven." And that leads him to a discourse about the importance of children. And about the attitude. Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And then he begins to talk. That's in verse 5. Matthew 18 verse 5. But then he begins to talk about the fact that we ought not to offend little ones that believe. Whoever offends one of these little ones that believes in me. It's better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and cast out in the... Or he was drowned in the mid-depths of the sea. And then he says... A little bit later, take heed, verse 10, that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven, you see it? Their angels behold the face of my Father. And they always behold the face of my Father. That's interesting. Isn't it amazing how you read the Bible and not see things? One little word in that passage changes, really makes this thing sort of, makes this thing very, very interesting. There are some angels that are there in the presence of those little ones who have faith. And the implication is, if you damage their faith, if you despise one of these little ones, God's going to know about it. Why? Because their angels behold the face of the Father. You think about children in Bible class. You know how easy it is to not make real good preparation to teach Bible class? You're asked to teach and you go back and been one of those weeks and, and, and you're not ready to preach. You're not, not ready to preach. Not ready to teach. Nobody's going to know about it. You can go in there and you can just, you, you can, uh, you, you, you can bluff your way through it. You better be careful. Why? You despise one of these little ones, their angels, the whole face of the Father. And I don't know what the arrangement is here, who, who, who decides who teaches and in, in, in children in a Bible class. You ever think about the fact? Somebody comes and says, would you teach the little children in this class or that class next week and, or next quarter or the next several months? And you say, no, I don't want to do it. You need to be careful. Why? Because they're angels. The whole of faith will follow. You see, there may not anybody on this earth know what happens in these Bible classes. But that doesn't mean God doesn't know why. Because their angels, these little ones' angels, behold the face of the Father. The word there is interesting to you. It's not that just the angels behold the face of the Father, but their angels. Angels that are peculiar, peculiar to those little ones behold the face of the Father. Now, you're ready to say, does that mean we have guardian angels? I didn't say that. 
That's not what it says. But here's what the scripture says. Little ones have angels. Little ones have angels. That behold the face of the Father. And you better be careful what you do to these little ones. You, you remember when you sent them to the first grade? Kindergarten, I guess. And now we're going to send them to kindergarten first. And, and, and you went down to Kmart, Walmart, and you bought that little lunch box and you packed them a lunch in it. Or you bought them a school satchel and, and, and they put it on their back so it would be like their big brothers and sisters. And, 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 and that little child walks away from you walking into that classroom. And it's about all you, it's about all you stand to do, isn't it? Turn them loose that way. Oh, don't worry that much about them. Why? Their angels are there. Their angels are there. I'm glad. I was talking to one of our young fathers about this very topic. His little boy is about three, I guess. His name's John John, and I have to be careful when I'm preaching. I do a lot of rhetorical preaching. I'll ask a question. Have you ever thought about this? What do you think about that? And I do a lot of preaching like that. I have to be careful when John John's in the audience. He'll answer me. Sure as anything. I mean, I tell you, I was up, I was up preaching the other day, and I said, Ted, you know, could you, you know, uh, is, is it, or I've gotten exactly how I asked the question, but I sure wanted yes for an answer. And I came down on that just about as hard as I could, and I asked that question, and I, and I wanted everybody's mind to shout out yes. A little John John sits right over here. He said, no! Well, <laughs> I was talking to John John's daddy, and he said, Dan, I'd hardly wait to get home and talk to John John. I'm gonna, here's what I want to tell him. I'm going to say, John John, you be careful that you don't lose your angel. <laughs> what? I'll tell you, I, that's, uh, uh, isn't that remarkable? You be careful. They're angels to hold the face of the Father. That, that is so very, very interesting. How many angels are there? How many angels are there? Well, you know, you know, almost figured out. It's got a calculator. Look in the book of Revelation. Look in, in, in the book of Revelation. You can almost nail this thing down just about as tight as you can. It's, it's over there in chapter 5 where in chapter 4 there's the beautiful picture of God on the throne. In chapter 5 the, the one on the throne has a book in his hand sealed with seven seals. And, and, and finally the Lamb of God found worthy to open up the book. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them, any accountants here, the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. Let's see now. A thousand thousand would be a million, wouldn't it? And 10,000 thousand would be 10 million. And 10,000 times 10,000 would be a hundred million. And so there's our first number. Now, if you'll just add this other number and tell me what number you come up with, I'll, I'll tell you exactly how many angels there are. John says, and thousands of thousands. How many is that? I don't know that. I don't, I don't know how many thousands we're talking about. I, I think it's, was it Carl Sagan in, on the PBS that uh, uh, 
use this expression, millions and millions and millions. That didn't originate with him. Thousands of thousands is millions and millions. How many, how many angels were there? Thou, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Oh, yes. You couldn't figure it out if you wanted to, could you? And, and that's, that's why he makes it so vague, no doubt. Absolutely. There's a lot of them, absolutely. Look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is really the better answer to the question of how many angels there are. It says, you have not come to Mount Zion. These Israelites have come to Mount Zion and said, you have not come to Mount Zion, but you come to a better place than Mount Zion. You didn't come to a mountain that might be touched. Um, verse, verse 18 says, you have not come to, un, under the mount that might be touched. Uh, verse 22 says, you've come to a different mountain, you Christians. You have come unto Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. And when the Bible talks about he might gather all things in heaven and earth together in one, all of a sudden, we who heart God's folks on this earth are tied together to that which is in heaven. Ye have come to an innumerable company of angels. To the general assembly, the church of the firstborn ones. How many angels are there? I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue. What are they doing? Right? That, that, he, that, they were there to serve Christ. I could call call down those. You know, we sing the song 10,000 angels, and yet that number there he gives a little bit greater. Yeah. Right, right. What are angels doing? Let me show you what I, what I believe is one of the most exciting verses in all of our Hebrews chapter 1. How many are there? 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands, and innumerable company. Last verses of Hebrews 1 says, He never said to any angel, Sit thou on my right hand. That's reserved for the Son. That's for Jesus. To which of the angels did he say at any time, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Didn't say it to the one. But then he said, Are they not all, all the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Think about what that verse is. Did you hear what that verse says? Every angel in heaven, without exception, the word all means, means, means the entirety, and every angel in heaven has been sent forth to minister for them that shall be heirs of eternal salvation. Now, I know who the heirs of salvation are. That's why I'm a Christian. That, 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 that's why you're, you're, you're a Christian. You want to be an, an heir of God. You want to be the person in the last part of that verse that says, minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. That's us. Well, what does it say about angels? It says, and look at it, it says, every angel there is has been sent forth to minister for us, serve for us. What are they doing? I didn't answer that one. 
I know what they're doing. I, I know this they're doing. And that is that there is not a single one of those 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels whose purpose in the plan of God at this very moment is to minister on our behalf. I don't know how God works. I know he's not working miraculously, but I know God works. Over in, over in the book of Psalms, David says some things that amaze me. Psalms 34. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his trouble. The Psalm of David discusses David beseeching the Lord. I sought the Lord, verse 4, he said, and he heard me and delivered me from my fears. The, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, verse 6, saved him out of his trouble. Now you look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamped round about them that fear him and delivereth them. I don't know how that happened. But I believe with all my heart that the Bible simply says God's angels are involved in my life and in caring for me in some way. And I don't know how. I just thank God that it is happening. That's what that text says. 10,000 times 10,000 and every one of them sent forth to minister for us. Now you've probably got some questions about angels. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is the greatest verse in all the Bible to answer these questions you've got about angels. Deuteronomy 29, 29. You might want to write that down read it sometime. We're not going to look at it because our time's up. But just remember, it's there because probably of all the questions that this study stirred up in your mind, that's the one verse that will answer probably most of the questions you have. Thank you very much for the way you've